On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, actor John Perkis tells us about his experiences on The Tick, Daredevil, Gotham, and the greatest Star Wars project you'll never see. Plus, we take a look back at the pop culture highlights from 2018. You heard me. Now, straight from the National Super Institute Convention in Reno, Nevada, this is 1.21 Gigawatts. Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 24 for January 2018. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. This is the first episode of 1.21 Gigawatts for 2018, and there is so much amazing nerdy mass media content headed our way over the next 12 months. Now, we could preview the assorted movies, TV shows, and other shiny geeky moments that we're looking forward to over the next 12 months, or we could once again buck that trend and hop in the DeLorean, or the TARDIS, or the 12 Monkey Splinter Chair, or spin Hermione Granger's Time Turner, or utilize whatever your preferred means of temporal disruption is, as we leap ahead and take a look back at 2018, the year that was and is yet to be. Ah, 2018. No one could have predicted how crazy a year you ended up being. At the movies, Black Panther was a massive success at the box office, prompting huge amounts of surprise from pundits and industry analysts that never bothered to pay attention to the demographic makeup of the ticket-buying drivers behind successful films Get Out, Straight Outta Compton, Creed, Medea Goes to Jail, Bad Boys 1 and 2, and Doug Jones' victory in the 2017 Alabama Senate race. Ready Player One, the sci-fi film from director Steven Spielberg, based on the popular book, was also a huge hit. The film did, of course, deviate from the copious 1980s pop culture references that helped make the book so popular, by instead leaning heavily on the properties of parent studio Warner Brothers. While the inclusion of the Iron Giant and many DC Comics characters still seemed true to the spirit of the story, Fans protested when Ready Player One's final battle sequence was basically replaced with the basketball game climax from Space Jam. Speaking of sci-fi films, Solo, A Star Wars Story was released in May, and it just became the first significant box office underachiever in the Star Wars saga. Mm. Meaning it only made $325 million domestic, with a global total of $1.1 billion only the second highest grocer of the year. Oh, such a black eye on the franchise. Poor Disney, just can't catch a break. Disney's mega deal acquisition of 20th Century Fox also became official, which resulted in many expected and some not so expected media moves and repositionings of classic TV and film franchises. For example, the Alien franchise was rebooted on television to focus on the adventures of the Alien Queen from Aliens in her formative teen years in a somewhat transparent bid to make the Xenomorph royalty the latest Disney princess. The Disney Junior programming lineup was never quite the same. 
Of course, the Fox acquisition also meant that the Fantastic Four and X-Men properties finally returned to Marvel Studios. Marvel executive producer Kevin Feige maintained that the new acquisitions would be incorporated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but not at the expense of the MCU's core properties. Uh, that statement rang a bit hollow, however, when the first batch of Phase 4 films was announced and included Black Panther 2, in which the superhero King of Wakanda begins courting Storm of the X-Men, with a special appearance from Wolverine, a fifth Avengers movie with an exciting new all-mutant lineup featuring the Scarlet Witch, Beast, Rogue, Firestar, Havoc, Sunspot, Deadpool, and Wolverine, and then of course the relatively self-explanatory Ant-Man and the Wasp and Wolverine. And finally, Jodie Whittaker premiered as the first female star of the legendary British sci-fi show Doctor Who. The fresh take on the 55-year-old character was warmly received and garnered impressive ratings, resulting in disbelief and dismissive tones from pundits and industry analysts that never bothered to pay attention to the demographic makeup of the consistently strong ratings drivers behind successful shows like Sex and the City, Gilmore Girls, Supergirl, Charlie's Angels, Golden Girls, I Love Lucy, and Doug Jones' victory in the 2017 Alabama Senate race. And that was a look back at 2018, the year that was and is yet to be. When we at 1.21 gigawatts, yes, by we, I'm including co-producer Cisco in this statement, who you'll hear briefly later in this interview, sat down with actor John Perkis, we knew we'd be in for a fun interview. Cisco knew John from his voiceover work. I was familiar with his roles as Stan Gibson, the underworld accountant with a secret on Daredevil Season 2, and the lunatic Arkham Asylum inmate Nigel on Gotham. And we got all that, but also stories of Emily Blunt, secret Star Wars projects, the British royal family, and much, much more. All from a terrifically accessible and friendly gentleman who oozes talent and kindness. Secure those earbuds, listeners. Here comes John Perkis. John Perkis is an actor who leads a double life. Now that's something you can say about most actors, I suppose. During any given job, they're fully committed to the role they play and then they can walk away and return to their own identity. But in the case of Mr. Perkis, he alternates between distinctly rich theater roles before then jumping into a collection of some of the most popular sci-fi and fantasy franchises on television, Daredevil, Gotham, Doctor Who, and the new series The Tick on Amazon Prime. And there's no way I'm letting you out of this recording studio without hearing about Llama Cop. <laughs> John, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Thank you, Brad. Really good to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> um, needless, it's already, it's already floating out around. It's out, out there. there. It's out there. Yes. Needless to say, we're going to talk about uh, all about your career, especially your time spent among custom superhero dom. Uh, but I feel I've got to begin by asking you something more personal, <laughs> and it's probably a story you've told twenty five thousand times. But when one begins reading your bio on IMDb, and it talks about how your father was born of English aristocracy and your mother of Irish aristocracy. Uh, it's hard not to stop and say, well, hold on, what, what am I reading right now? So so let me ask you this way. This is the way I want to ask this question. In the film Young Victoria, you played the Earl of Derby. Were you just playing yourself? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, my eldest brother, possibly, because he's the seventh Earl of Carisford. But uh, that became very interesting because they put me down as the Earl of Derby. And I'm the first... Uh, member of a household to go and pay allegiance to the Queen following the death of her uncle. And as the Earl of Derby, I couldn't be. 
because mm -hmm. by order of rank, it has to be a duke that goes first. So on the hop, he said, oh, well, then make him a duke. And they <laughs> said, uh, we'll make him the Duke of Cumberland, uh, the brother of the king that's just died. So uh, Emily was sort of going through her whole process. As Emily her, Blunt. And Emily right. Blunt yeah. as, as the queen, having just lost her, her dear uncle. And of course, it's very confused as to who I was. And so I was able to help her by giving her a, a, that picture. But it, it now on the credits, it's very interesting because although I was the Duke of Cumberland, <laughs> At that moment, it's not on the credits. They've still got no, me down yeah. as the Earl of Derby. Yeah. Was I playing myself? You know, I. <laughs> I was going to say, as you're telling I, the story I, for a while, I thought this I, is still about you. It's, it's not actually <laughs> the movie. <laughs> I do carry the crest of part of the crest of the royal family on my little finger. This is what yeah. we call a signet ring, mm -hmm. and it signifies who my family are. And in the old days, when I'm single, it would be worn upside down so that any future wife or family of future wife could see which family I came from. Wow. So once I'm married, it gets turned around and put that way. And it also doubles as my wedding ring. Um, so I actually always tried to avoid it. I have always <laughs> tried to avoid it. Before I went to drama school, I was working on a building site. So to walk in talking like this was no good. Mm -hmm. So that's where I began to get handy with accents. And so I'd go and I'd be talking like that, right? You know, all right, I'll go and get the tea, whatever you want. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Well, you say that, I'll get a plank of wood and uh, carry it up there. Yeah, whatever. So I just, to defend myself, I was burying my accent. And so when I get to drama school, it's full of, of understandably, very liberal-minded socialist individuals. And I come from a very upper-class right-wing background. And, uh, and I was caught in the middle there because... Uh, I was just coming of age, so I was about to be presented with this signet ring, as one does when you, one does when you become 21. It's part of becoming a member of the family. And, um, and I just was fighting with that and trying to hide it. Uh, and I've really tried to walk away from it as much as possible. And then I come here and my representation is saying, oh, you should use this fact that you're who mm. you are and you're related to the Queen and it's... And I said, really, what's the point? I'm actually here to play anything but myself. Uh, and I've always attempted to do that. And it's really interesting that when I, I've, my actual name is Lyne Perkins, it's a double-barreled name. And I wanted to go down the route of Dan Day-Lewis, who was two years above me at Bristol Old Vic, and of course went into my beautiful laundrette. When he walked into that show, no one knew that he wasn't who he is until he tripped over a cable and swore in his RP. They thought he was from South London, because you know how immersive he is. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to play, I don't want to be playing champagne, clinking, <coughs> upper-class idiots. I want to be playing really gritty roles. The funny thing is, with my double-barreled name, I played East End Victorian murderers, I played IRA bombers, uh, I played really low-lifes, and I changed my name to my first wife's name of Duval, and the moment I did that, I was in House of Cards, House of Elliot, Jeeves and Worcester, the original BBC House mm -hmm. of Cards, are playing all of these upper class idiots that I've been trying to avoid. And people were saying, yeah, but it's, it's in your physiognomy. You can't mm -hmm. escape the way you look. The way you look is who you are. And so I've always wanted to, 
wherever possible, transform myself away from who I am and take on roles that challenge me and challenge them as to their perception of me. Sure. Um, and that becomes a much more interesting journey uh, for me as an actor. But yeah, uh, I do. I do have that background. I, my brother was at the wedding, the, the royal wedding of William and Kate. I have danced with Kate Middleton. Whoa! And and her brother, because he was at a time when she and William weren't together. He was at a nightclub called Raffles in London. So her brother James was accompanying her everywhere. Um, and and more recently here, actually, had lunch with Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal Princess Anne, who was here trying to raise money for the, the upkeep of HMS Victory, which is Lord Nelson's ship that's docked in Portsmouth permanently. And one of my uh, other ancestors was uh, Richard, First Admiral Lord Howe. And he fought along with his brother, General William Howe, against the Americans in, the rev in that revolution, in that war. Uh, that one. That one. That revolution. And, uh, <laughs> and he was in charge of the Navy, and William was in charge of the Army. But prior to the war, they were very good friends with Benjamin Franklin. So they were actually trying to get a, a reconciliation. It was at that point the king said, well, we better take them away because they're causing trouble. So they <laughs> took them away, <laughs> away from the battle. But I, I, I wasn't aware until I was wandering around Dumbo and there at this green there is mention of the famous battle where um, the troops, the American troops, were basically cornered. The British had them. They hadn't got a hope in hell. And, and my ancestor, William Howe, was in charge of the British troops. And that's when the fog famously came down mm. and all the ferrymen came over and, and whisked the American army away. Otherwise, that would have been the end of... That would have been the end yeah, of that's it. it. Um, so, and of course, then I end up in turn. But not as, right, a British right. not as a British officer. But uh, in itself, that was all very fascinating. Um, and yes, so I met wow. Princess Anne at that, because eventually my ancestor also commanded uh, Trafalgar, um, commanded Victory himself, and then he was made the first Lord of the Admiralty, and that command of the ship went to one individual called Lord Nelson, who was the last person uh, at that point <laughs> to... Uh, to command the ship and uh, famously lost his life on board. Right. So, yes, I've got quite, quite a colourful history. This is remarkable. And frankly, I feel like a grade A idiot that I'm going to go from this and be like, so Gotham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to that, talk about. That is amazing. That's amazing. Well, well, we'll definitely do that. Although these no. stories are incredible and, and they're spinning my mind in a thousand different directions, which, uh, so so I've got to follow up with some of this stuff. So, so your representation... Um, wanted what? what oh they yes, feel? they do. I what don't do know. The, but is this thing about the, oh, you know, the Americans are fat, they're fascinated. Uh, as soon as I open my mouth, which is <laughs> quite interesting. Whenever I open my mouth in LA or around here, they say, "Oh, you're from New Zealand." Uh, <laughs> what? Are you Australian? Are you South African? I used to have that for a while. I don't know whether it's because my we're not that smart my, people. My having been around LA for four years, and then I've been here for about three years. I suppose. Interesting, the play I just did recently was a British play, and there were some members of the audience who thought I was American putting on a British accent, uh. which is interesting, because I was playing a character who's trying to be hip and cool. Yeah. So his accent is not fully RP, and he throws in the odd dude and man. And, and so I guess 
I'm relaxing vowels at points because I do know when I go home people feel I'm sounding a bit more American. Mm. Then when I come back because I've been at home, people can hear how English I am. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah. As a performer, you you've got a great satisfying mix between stage work and then going off to work on film and TV. Mm, yeah. Um, and then a little bit more theater, then a little bit more TV, which sounds like a wonderful balance. Do you have a preference between the two, or do you find that? Uh, the different opportunities complement each other. I, that is absolutely right. I, I, I love both, but ultimately I come from the theatre. I love theatre. I love that connection with an audience. Nothing compares with it, nothing at all. The fear you get when you walk out into that auditorium uh, that, that, and then that just dissipates and that energy becomes something else and that, that, that to and fro with the audience that informs your performance and it gives a different performance every night. I love that. And that's, that's what drew me to acting in the first place was theatre. Uh, so I, I always, if I can, like to do at least one play a year if it's possible. But I love what film has to offer. Sure. And, and what I've had recently received, certainly being here, has just been phenomenal <laughs> and that the, we will talk about the tick but the tick was something completely different for me uh, a real adventure and a journey that you can only do with film yeah uh, and then there's all these other skills and and techniques that you're honing and learning on the hoof as well so i love that i love the instant instant camaraderie as well you know, that can be very short-lived. You should sure. just be there for a day. Absolutely. As well as for five months. Sure. Whereas in theatre, you have a much longer gestation period, and right. so friendships tend to solidify and, yeah. and become something stronger. Uh, but it, I always am amazed at how strong friendships can become on a very short you know, time. Well, it's interesting because it can always be such an, as you say, a very intense uh, and, and very duration, but for sure when everyone wants to be there and they're excited about it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, you and me, we're brothers, even yeah. if it's, whether a day or it's five months or, or in <laughs> the case of a theater company, even longer than that. Yeah. But um, yeah, those are, those are love affairs that, that stick hard and they oh, don't yeah. go away. No, they don't go away. And yeah. I, I mean, I have very fond, Emily Blunt, I have very fond memories. I was with her for two days. Um, one moment, famously tripping over the carpet and nose diving into her um, <laughs> into her lap. <laughs> uh, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée was the director of that, and uh, he wondered what everyone was laughing at because he was busy behind the camera looking <laughs> at something else and didn't realise I was buried headfirst in in, uh, in Emily. Sadly, no <laughs> blooper reel <laughs> on the Young Victoria I don't DVD. Think so. that's Unfortunately, a shame. <laughs> no, I don't think that's available. I've not seen it anyway. Um, so, so a healthy chunk, obviously, of the TV projects that you found yourself cast in are squarely in geek pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said yeah. in the intro, Doctor Who, Daredevil, Gotham. How how do you find yourself visiting this niche so regularly? I'm guessing it's just weird, dumb luck that I, that's what's available. I think but. it is weird, dumb luck. A friend of mine, Alan Cox, who's um, a fabulous actor, and he's, he's doing Hamlet with Michael Urie up in Washington at the moment, and uh, he said... Yes, it, it seems that you've cornered the market in exotic roles. <laughs> and uh, is it That could be taken a whole different way. It could be, yes, that could be. <laughs> yeah, right, you're right. Um, I know, it really has been a case of good fortune because when it, when it came to Daredevil, allegedly, we didn't know what we were going up for. Of course, my representation uh, did because they know what the code names are. Sure. 
it was Ringside was the code name mm, for this. Nice. And I just the previous year seen the first season and said to my, to my representation, this is stunning. I want to be in this. Yeah. And it was fluke. It mm. really was. They were looking for a very definite character, a British accountant who spoke fluent Japanese. I speak French, I speak a little bit of Italian and German, I speak no Japanese. <laughs> and uh, so I duly turned up at Julie Schubert's office and she knew that. And she said, no, 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 it's, it's fine. Uh, we're just gonna, they printed out some phonetic Japanese sentences. Two, this has turned into quite an adventure in, its, in itself. Two sentences in Japanese. And so I did that, she said, that's amazing, that's wonderful. Um, um, what's your availability? And if you were thrown uh, some lines in Japanese, would you be all right with it? And I said, yeah, I should be fine. I mean, I've got a friend of mine who lives in uh, Taipei. He speaks fluent Japanese. I can talk to him. Because um, I was thinking, oh, we had two lines of Japanese. Yeah, it's no problem. problem. I can do that. Sure. And, uh, and so we were both obviously wanting something and not fully listening to what was being said. I duly am waiting and waiting for these lines to turn up. I've been booked, which is amazing. <laughs> and of course, the whole, the whole format is you get a code to get onto the site to Ooh. take your sides. You're not allowed to see the script. So it's all very hidden Masonic stuff. <laughs> and uh, you get your sides. And I kept looking for them and they weren't there. And of course, as far as I was concerned, I was a one day player. That's all I am. I'm just doing one day. I'm coming in. I'm going out. They've not said I'm anything else. So I thought, how much pressure can I put to ask for these signs to come? And suddenly they turned up two days before filming 20 lines of the most difficult formal oh, Japanese Lord. imaginable. My friend was out shooting a commercial somewhere in Japan. I couldn't get hold of him. So I had to Google this. And the first, the first 10 lines I managed... And then with less than 24 hours to go, I was struggling with the last 10. And then my wife said, write them down. Do what you do when you're learning a language. Write them down. I did. And boom, they went in. I turn up. Floria Sigismondi is the first director. I've already made a mistake there because I sat in makeup with Elodie Young, who was playing Electra, and sort of briefly saw her at the other end of the room and said, hello. And, uh, she's been made up. We'll get into the studio. And, uh, and, and I call Floria Elodie because I thought she was. <laughs> because they had disguised everything, they told sure. me someone else was directing, a bloke was directing. So they, they'd hidden so much from me. What was the me. purpose oh, of that? I have no idea. They, they were, it was really odd. They hid so much. So I duly arrive and we start the scene. Thankfully, it's on the telephone. I fluff the first bit, then we're fine and I'm, f and I'm sailing. And after two takes, I'm just waiting while they're resetting. And then the first AD comes up to me and says, oh, this is Mizo, your Japanese uh, dialect coach. I said, really? Where have you been all what? my life? And uh, she said, well, your grouping is wrong. Your pronunciation is wrong. I thought, you're joking. Uh, I, I said, you know, this feels like I've been rehearsing for Hamlet and I've turned up and now you're telling me, no, you're doing Twelfth Night. <laughs> and these lines are redundant. <laughs> and, and you're now doing, because thankfully I had the English translation, so I had the sense of what I was saying. But she said, no, you're speaking Mandarin. They don't, we don't go, It's So I thought, oh, crikey. And uh, so every time we stopped, she was going, and then I was on the phone. And, and, and times I had to just 
all rubbish because I was getting very lost. Mm. Elodie at one point said, wow, your Japanese is amazing. And Florio looked up from behind the camera and said, no, it's not. Musa's just said he's talking rubbish. So, <laughs> great. Thank but you. then Thank right you, at the end, I did a wild track and it was perfect. Yes. And that's what you hear because thankfully, as I say, it was a phone call. So it's going backwards and forwards. But for me, for a moment, it was like, oh my God. Uh, and I did, I sat down next to one of the producers and they said, we were told you speak Japanese. <laughs> I told you that. Oh. It's on my, my self-tape. You could see I don't speak Japanese. Yeah. Where did that come from? And then Miso said, oh, I had your number a week ago. And I said, well, why didn't you contact me? And she said, well, I thought it was impolite because she's Japanese oh. to contact the actor. The actor should contact me. And of course, I didn't know she existed and I didn't know I warranted such a thing. And of course, then I ended up being in it for five months because they keep writing you yep. in as yep. they go. And that was interesting because Mark Viridian, who's <coughs> the writer or was indeed the the runner of this particular season, he writes a character into everything he works on called Stan Gibson. Because Stan Gibson was one of his best friends at college. Oh, that's fascinating. And in every show that he, write, he works on, bar one, spoiler alert, Stan Gibson dies. Mm. So that, so yes, it really is, as you see, out of accident rather than choice that wow. I've been fortunate enough to be cast in these amazing roles. Yeah. And that was amazing. Charlie, Charlie Cox, such a lovely guy. Such a, a true leading man. Mm -hmm. So generous on and off camera. Every time there's a, a meal break, he made a point of sitting with the stuntmen. Then he would, at another one, sit with the extras. Then at another one, he would sit. With, he made a point of being amongst everybody. Always having time. Always offering uh, you know gentle words here and there if, if he felt you needed them um, great great clown as well joking mm. and, and joshing around with the odd set he, he was a joy they all were Elodie was lovely I got to know Peter Shinkoda of course who plays Nobu uh, purely because he happened to be around when I was shooting my scenes um, I got engaged in three or four massive fight scenes yeah fascinating absolutely. to watch sure and, and, and to I would be assume a part to choreograph of, as well I mean, Chris Brewster, who doubles as uh, as Daredevil and, and as Matt, is the assistant coordinator. Um, Phil J. Silvera is the main coordinator. I mean, those. I don't know whether the guys have won an Emmy or a Golden Globe. I know they've been nominated. They certainly deserve it. Chris Brewster himself is just, you know, take after take. But I was very impressed with Charlie. My first fight scene was with him where he knocks me out in the yeah, bathroom. Yep. And uh, now these guys have been, they've been planning this a week in advance and they've been rehearsing it. Charlie hasn't. And he just walked in and he was told what he had to do. And uh, he fluffed it a couple of times and then he got it. And I said, wow, Charlie, you, you're trained in martial arts. He said, no, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I enjoy, just he's, he's a natural athlete. Sure. Basically. But so there's quite a lot that Charlie does himself. I mean, not any of the big backward somersaults, of course, things, yeah. but there is a lot that he does do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those those guys, my hats off to them. I mean, that, that my last scene, I'm on the floor with uh, about 15, 18 ninjas fighting yes, around me as in one the does. dark. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to make sure they didn't tread on me. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it was just you know with a strobe light flashing, it was. Oh, Incredible. And working with some great directors, Peter right. Hoare, in fact, who's a, a regular stalwart director of Doctor Who, uh, directed one of my episodes. Mm. Um, and 
and Andrew Goddard, another British director, who famously directed the the death scene of Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey. Oh. And uh, but so yeah, and me, and and Stephen Surchik. I mean, just a great, great list. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned Doctor Who. I want to touch on that for a second. It's been about 10 years, back in 2007-ish. Right? Yeah, the sound of the drums. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. When you were a voice of the Troclophane, um, those uh, weird spherical invaders from outer space. Yes. Was was that exciting or was it just another VO job? Again, this is the other thing. Nearly everything I do, I have to sign an NDA. Everything I do. Uh, Did you have to sit on that one for a while? I have to sit on that one because, of course, I'm being shown things that I'm Sure. Wasn't allowed to see what sure. was happening to the doctor and, of course, who the Toclophane are. Yeah. You know, which was a big secret. Right. Um, and, and it was the return of the master as yeah, well. Yeah, it was the return so of the master and it was like a, a season closer. Ah, it was. When yeah, it was big, the heyday of big tenant. double, double episode. Yeah. Absolutely. A heyday of tenant. Very much so. Um, and that, no, that was, that was great. Um, but no, that was, that was a great experience. Uh, and I grew up with Doctor Who. I grew up with hiding behind the sofa with, at that time, wobbly <laughs> sets, but uh, terrified of uh, of the ice of the ice warriors and the Cybermen and, of course, the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, most frightening for me was uh, they did a wonderful episode where all the mannequins came to life, and oh, their yeah. hands were dropped down and they <clears throat> had ray guns, mm-hmm. and they must have shot it around London on a Sunday, early in the morning. And they used Harrods, you know, they had them right. smashing through the windows yes. of Harrods yeah. in all the shops and coming out and attacking the Was that, the that might have been Eccleston's first episode. Was that the first episode No, that's episode way of back. This was Jean Pertwee. Oh, no, oh to, I see. The oh, original oh, was sign very little, the mannequins very, came to uh, life. Well, yes. Yes, the first time. And Sean uh, Pertwee's desperate to come back as, as his father. I have to say, <laughs> if anyone out there is listening. He, he, and I tell you, I've seen him with a wig on. Mm-hmm. of his father's hair and the cloak and the, it is uncanny yeah. you are looking at his the doctor father. you're yeah. looking at his father is and of course he can do the voice so I feel like that's been tossed around a little bit in fandom well, like I think fans talk, want fans to see it fans have talked about it and As, he's trying to push it out there yeah especially now that they're playing with the idea of, of first doctor being so prominent in recent mm-hmm, episodes absolutely yeah. that's possible I know he'd love to do that but uh, no, that was uh, that absolutely. Whenever I get these moments, they are total kid dreams coming to life sure. into reality. Um, I mean, I'd love to be in an episode of The Doctor as a physical being, <laughs> but just being that was just fabulous. Yeah. And uh, get my head blown away. I, I like the way that you talk about it as. Uh, getting to play in this area that you know you've dreamed of, or your your, your inner child, or not so much inner child, um, it gets to play in these playgrounds that that you've dreamt of. It is not the first time, of course, that that's been said on this podcast. Sure, but but I'm going to tell you something that I've never spoken about ever. This is totally unique about a boyhood dream coming to reality. I played an imperial officer in. A Star Wars scene. Get the hell out. Now, but there's a... There's Everyone's a, ears in this room. There's a trick up. to this. Yes. And it's an extraordinary one. Frederick Bond directed me in this. Frederick is a wonderful Swedish director who directed Sheila Berth and uh, uh, Evans Rachel... Oh, um, uh, and Maz Mikkelsen in Charlie Countryman. But he also is a big commercials director. And this was a massive commercial. Again, I signed an NDA, and I'm still not allowed to talk about it for a product. 
It was a rerun of a scene from Return of the Jedi. They took over three stages at Universal Studios. Oof. We brought Universal Studios to a standstill because one of those stages was a holding stage for 60 extras. We for had, this commercial? For this commercial. Of course. We had Twi'leks, we had Wookiees, we had a, a Boba Fett, we had Sand People. We had 30 stormtroopers from the 501st Legion and they marched us down to the set. So, of course, we marched out. All the executives were going, what's going on? Because Disney had just taken right, right. the rights. And they, what, <laughs> what, what's happening? Why, why are they everything was grinding universal? to a halt. They'd taken over two other stages. They hadn't just built a section of the Death Star's bridge. They built the whole bridge covering two stages. Lucasfilm were present. They said they'd never seen anything like this. Whenever they shot scenes with stormtroopers, at the most, they only ever had 12 stormtroopers uh, in able to get them on sure. in one shot with the set because <laughs> the set was in sections. We had this, I'd spent days with Legacy or the people that they made the uh, Iron Man uh, okay. outfit for, for Robert Downey Jr. Getting my outfit just right, fitting me perfectly. They made more flexible uh, armor for the featured stormtroopers. So we're there. And Darth Vader hasn't turned up yet. He's a particularly special actor who's only used for um, commercials and public appearances. He's the only person allowed mm. to, to be, represent to the represent brand. In, in the that brand. Way. Yeah. So I haven't seen him at this point, and we were rehearsing. <laughs> and they suddenly decided, let's march 30. Imagine this. I had 30 stormtroopers behind me. I was the Imperial officer in charge of them, standing out in front marching in time, going down the corridor, leading to the bridge, all one set, coming round the blind corner, there's the bridge, and standing there, waiting for me, pacing up and down, is Darth Vader. <coughs> I was 17, I was still, I was a very young 17 when that first came out, Star Wars, and this was like, oh my God, and I began to hyperventilate. I began to have an out of, I began to have an out of body experience. I began to get dizzy, and uh, I just remembered in time to say halt. And uh, and thankfully we had a marine officer who was uh, an ex marine officer because they can't hear. They couldn't hear me, or they couldn't hear anyone shouting the time to them mm. to keep to keep time. So they had luckily one of them in the middle who was shouting time underneath, and boom, that was the scene. And uh, for whatever reason, that commercial was scrapped. Oh! They completed it. It was finished. And to this day, we don't know who pulled it. Did the product pull it? Or did Disney pull it? We had Lucasfilm with us throughout. Um, I don't think I have it on my phone, but I wow. do have some actual footage because people from Legacy took my phone Ooh. and took a picture of rehearsals. Wow. And uh, it's, it is. It's phenomenal. I would kill to see uh, and that. I was the only well, featured artist, of course, because everyone else everyone was in the else is, Sure, yeah. <laughs> everyone else has a mask on. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then they had, they'd re, they'd re, they'd also, they'd re recreated the cantina scene. They'd recreated a whole lot of scenes that were being used for this product. That is huge. It was massive. I'm never buying that toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know, wink, wink, if it yeah, was no. toothpaste, yeah. wink, wink. Um, what, what year was that? 2013. Oh, so this is this is definitely of the Disney. Oh yeah, era. yeah, yeah. That was the Disney era. So uh, yeah, Holy that was that was cow. a real like wow, this is unbelievable. And then you never see it. 
And of course, this does happen a lot in the industry. I mean, I've yeah, got friends course. who've done pilots and series and they just pull the whole thing. They just don't even air it. Mm -hmm. They don't even try it out. They just pull it. But for that moment, it was like, wow. I'm that's it. That's your entire. I'm in heaven. Yeah, that's you know, it. I, I, I'm uh, out of here. <laughs> I think it's safe. To, it was safe to say, though, even though it didn't see uh, the time of day in the public sphere, that has never stopped Star Wars enthusiasts and whatnot. I, John, I think you're canon somewhere. <laughs> I think if, if the character has a name, if they don't, I think you can name one. And uh, an action figure. The five hundred and first wanted me to join them, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'll and, bet they and, did. And go on events around uh, the country. I'm sure, they did. And I said, I can't. I just haven't got the time. <laughs> um, and I've got to hand this back. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> it fits me perfectly. I'm thinking of sneaking away <laughs> yeah, yeah. for burgers and not coming no, back to They won't home. notice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's great. That was a great childhood dream come true. Absolutely, and it, and it just continues. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But on that on that one, yeah, I was working a lot with uh, Robin Lord Taylor again, and B D Wong. Yeah, I worked with him as well. Uh, two just delightful people again. Such modest individuals. On Gotham, so yeah. I've been. Yeah. I tell you, what, I've been so fortunate in general, and certainly since I've been here, everyone I've worked with, they've just been so lovely. Um, James Spader in The Blacklist, and mm -hmm. Jamie Bell in Turn, and I just worked with Damien Lewis in Billions. He, he was on the other end of a phone, which he'd, he'd done sometime before I was in the scene. But <laughs> I've, been, I've been blessed with really lovely people and great, I don't know, there's a great, the crews are great as well. I mean, they are in the UK, but, but I don't know, they, they seem more laid back. And of course you have craft services here, we don't have that in the UK. Certainly when I left the UK, there were no craft services. That's crazy. I know. You might Says get the spoiled odd, American. Every now and again, you'd get a cup of tea and some biscuits. But you, you nothing near what we get here with craft services. Yeah. Um, it's phenomenal. So maybe that's just why the crew is always in such a good mood. Sure. <laughs> they well, say, you know, they, 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 of course, a crew marches on its stomach. Yes. Yeah. Um, the U.S. has to be number one in something. Oh, yeah, everything well. else might be plummeting <laughs> off the cliff swiftly. But by God, craft services we craft lead services the globe and catering. Oof. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's that. We'll complete the comic book TV show section <laughs> of uh, of your resume, uh, which brings us to the tick. Of course, the second half of its first season resumes on February 23rd, and that's when you join the cast as Dr. Karamazov. Uh, I know that you can't say too much. We've, we've talked excessively about NDAs, but um, whatever you can. T the property itself is so hilarious and ridiculous. I read Tick comics back in the 80s a little bit, and I feel like that was sort of part of the wave of, you know, when Ninja Turtles were sort of a spoof. You know, like before it be it took off as a franchise and it was just these two like, look at this ridiculous thing that I sketched up just to entertain each other. And, and I feel like the tick was sort of that part of that wave. Oh like my God, yeah. The, the, night, the, beginning the of night of the billion ninjas. Yeah, the <laughs> night of a billion I mean, ninjas. Yeah. Uh, what's that? It's really funny. Oedipus Ashley Stevens, who's like a cross uh, between Electra and Jessica Rabbit. I mean, she's <laughs> just, I, I hope she comes into the series. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The Tick. You see, what's interesting is I really didn't know anything about The Tick mm. when I started. Mm -hmm. Also, I didn't audition for this. This was a very uh, curious event where uh, I'm not quite sure what happened, but Suzanne Ryan had seen me since I arrived here three years ago. She's seen me for Forever. Um, she's seen me for Blind Spot. She's seen me for Deception. So I've constantly been in front of her. 
Never booked any of those. But she was constantly bringing me back in and bringing me back in. And then suddenly my representation called me and said, oh, you're on an avail for this character called Dr. Karamazov in something called The Tick. And she said, there's no audition. She said, Suzanne's just put you up for it. And, uh, and if you get it, we should know uh, later tonight, but I can't tell you anything. And if you do, you start tomorrow at 9.30. <laughs> okay. Great. So, and, and here are the Japanese yeah. types. <laughs> wait for the, well, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, oh, no. Wait for it. NDA. So, uh, <laughs> so at 10.30 at night, I was booked. And I was told, you're Armenian? Uh-huh. And you've got, a, you've got four lines in Armenian. So what's Armenian? I said, don't worry, it doesn't exist. But Ben Edmund, he will see you before you go to camera and he'll talk about your character and he'll help you with those, those lines. Okay. So there's Dr. Karamazov. And here are these four lines of utter nonsense in, I suppose, phonetic East in the European accent. Mm-hmm. No translation. So I actually don't know what he's saying. I've no idea what he's saying. And does anyone, does Ben Edlund know? No one knows? I duly turn up on set, I'm getting into costume, and I'm presented to Ben, and I see him down, and he's really thrilled I'm there, and uh, he's telling me a little bit about the story, because I'd done a little bit of research, and I said, I see that in an iteration of The Tick, there was a Doctor Strange Pants, who I'm assuming was loosely based on Doctor Strange Love, and he said, yes, 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 yes but don't worry about that. Um, this is someone completely of his own world. He's Armenian. It's a small state uh, from what was once the USSR. It doesn't actually exist. Um, And then just before he could say anything else, suddenly this chap burst in through the door and grabbed me and hugged me. And uh, and Ben was saying, yes, he's been wanting to see you. And I don't know who this is. And it turned out to be Barry Josephson, who's the executive producer and was the executive producer 16, 17 years ago now of the original live action series with Patrick Warburton and was executive producer on Turn. So he'd remembered me from Turn Ah. and the bits of the puzzle were beginning to fall together. And I think what had happened is Griffin fell ill for a week. He plays Arthur. They had to stop filming. The actor who was to play Dr. Karamazov had other obligations mm-hmm. and had to fall out and they were trying not to lose him and then they were left with a 24-hour window to find someone. <laughs> and duly, <laughs> I turned up. And, but we hadn't discussed the language and suddenly we're, he's got an emergency on set. So now we're marching down to the set where I meet Sherry Folkson, who's directing that particular segment. British director from North London, I've never met before, and it's like, oh, yeah, here you are, uh, and here's the idiot board. I said, what? And uh, so they had the lines written up on a big board next to the camera, because oh, wow. I'm, for the, my first appearance, which was in fact in two episodes of this first block, mm-hmm. I'm a hologram. Mm-hmm. So they said, yeah, just, um, you know, just read out the lines and uh, just say them to camera. Okay, but I don't know the lines because I... <laughs> so I started looking at them, looking to camera, and Sherry said, "No, no, 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 this isn't working." And uh, you, you're a hologram. You need to be looking directly at the camera, and he keeps looking to the side. So Ben said, "We'll just improvise." I said, "What?" I said, "Well, what's the language?" He said, "Well, it's a cross between Czech and Portuguese." So, 
and action. And he said every now and again, see Project the Kill with some Italian Project the Kill So, and he said, brilliant. And he said, he clapped his hands and said, brilliant. He can talk Armenian. And, uh, and then... A language uh, is born. He disappeared. Oh, wow. Throwing something over his shoulder as he left, which I can't tell you because... That set me off on a journey of truly the most fantastic <laughs> character arc I've ever been on in my life. It is extraordinary. I have had so much fun on this show. Wow. Again, I was only meant to do two episodes, uh, possibly four, and I had a massive holiday honeymoon already booked in Ireland because we haven't had a honeymoon. We've been married now since 2011, and I had an old friend of mine who's having a big birthday and we were going to have a joint my, on my birthday she was having a birthday in Connemara we booked everything we booked the hotel we booked the flight we booked the car and then Barry said because uh, I said oh look I'm doing this honeymoon he said uh, okay and then eventually he said I've got some good news and some bad news <laughs> so the good news is we love you so much and what you're doing with the character we've written you into the rest of the series the bad news is you can't go to Ireland so fortunately I have a very understanding wife mm-hmm. but at some point we do have to get back out there but yes, it was just like, wow, this was extraordinary. I had to have a, a silicon mold made of my head. Uh, and, I, and they said, have you done this before? And I said, yeah, yeah, no, I have. Because oh, I thought God. I had for a Walmart commercial where I played Satan. And I, and I, I, I <laughs> Hold think, on. I think I had the I, phrase, I had the, a Walmart commercial where you played Satan no, it's, is I, I, fabulous and telling. I had the body way. from one of the X-Men. And then these oh, wow. amazing guys built basically the head of Tim Curry. It was, but it was built bit by bit. It was, a, it was actually a nightmare process, but it was built bit by bit. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's all right. And in the end, I couldn't eat for the whole day. I had to be fed through a straw. And so but I wasn't prepared for this, which was actually completely straw up the nose and for an hour covered in a layer of silicon and then three other layers. And then, of course, it starts to become an oven as they were making, for a reason which you will find out on February the 23rd, this mould of my head. Um, and then green screen. I mean, I've done, I haven't done green screen before other than standing. Mm-hmm. But this is like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Not Griffin's favorite, I have to say. Griffin Newman is not a fan of green, screen. green screen. Oh no. <laughs> because poor devil, I mean, he has had to do an awful lot of it. Yeah. Because he does a lot of flying. Yeah. Um, but yes, <laughs> it's just been, and, and then filming in Harlem and uh, the, st- I mean, Ben Edlund. There's the human race, and then there's Ben Edmund. <laughs> His mind is just phenomenal. So I, I went off and I thought, I've got to find out something about this. So I read the, the big Edmund, sure. the uh, complete Edmund. Here's your called. compendium. The yes. compendium. And it's like, man, this is amazing. My, one of my favorite all-time paintings is Edward Hopper's Nighthawks. And that is the diner. In right. his comic books, <laughs> right. you've got the, the the there are four characters in that painting: the man and the woman. The woman is actually um, Joe Hopper, it's Ed Hopper's wife, modelled on, and then the guy serving behind. And the fourth character is the Tick, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they regularly meet up. But these wonderful characters, and as I say, Oedipus, Ashley Stevens, and Paul, the the samurai and uh, Clark Oppenheimer. I mean, what a brilliant idea. Clark Oppenheimer, he's a rubbish superhero. He's so bad, he becomes crooked. 
And so he's sacked and the tick is made the superhero that's going to run the city. Um, and he has to share Oppenheimer's house. Clark Oppenheimer is a, a, allegedly, by the looks of it, a kind of Bruce Wayne character. Mm-hmm. And now he's got to share his mansion with the tick. And, and he becomes an alcoholic. It's just Ben Edlund has got this mind that straight away I connected with because it's very much Monty Python and the Flying, mm-hmm. Monty Python's mm-hmm. flying Circus. Mm-hmm. Very much of that ilk. I can see and then that. you watch the yeah. cartoons. You know, The Mentalist. Yeah. disguises himself funny. as a baby to take this machine that's going to give him full power and the aliens to snatch him back and the machine transform themselves into dingoes. And you just think, wow, that is so on the edge. <laughs> Kids probably wouldn't get what was happening right, there. Right. But it's just, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and that he... This is a rare thing. From the age of 18 in 1986, for New England Comics in Boston, he creates this mascot, the Tick. And here we are, 2017, yeah. he has never lost control of his creation. Uh. How many people does that happen to? Through the three, I think it was three seasons of cartoons with I think Fox. So. About, yeah. And then that one, and why that closed, I don't know. I think it closed, as far as I can make out, because Fox decided to categorise it as a sitcom. Mm. Um, the original series. The original mm-hmm. series. And for that reason, it didn't go any further. The fans loved it, but it just didn't It didn't continue. Which is probably, uh, you know, to, to its testament, because it's always those shows that are barely categorizable that, you know, like, where do we place Twin Peaks? Is this yeah. a, yeah. Night, a soap? Is it science fiction? And then... The network it just like you know what niche. it's easier for us to not even have to try. To I do mean, it, can so. you classify Breaking Bad? Exactly, sure. I mean, not that that had any problems in taking off. Yeah, <laughs> Game of Thrones nearly didn't happen, right? Because the pilot was so awful, mm. they nearly scrapped the whole series. But the creators said, "No, no, no, we got to do something else." Yeah, and yeah. bingo, we can hang on to this. Yeah. All right, I teased this in the intro, uh, and the time has come for you to explain one of the most fascinating entries on your IMDb profile. <laughs> That project, Llama Cop. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the maddest, one of the maddest things I've ever done. These two boys who live here, Max Avery Clark. Um, I'm trying to remember the other guy. He's such a cool guy. Uh, Walter. Uh, Walter Mattis, Masterson, that's it. They'd been approached by stars to create a series, and they created this series, and they were in a meeting with stars, and they said, no, 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 that doesn't work. Have you got anything else? And off the top of his head, Max just said, okay, I've got this great idea. It's based on the Die Hard uh, franchise of films, but instead of Bruce Willis, the cop is a llama. And they said, what, you mean a Dalai Lama? They said, no, he's a llama. Although that would also not be bad. They said, go away. And uh, can you come back in about two hours and show us your, what you've got? They got nothing, because he just made that up on the hoof. They ran off to a coffee shop, they sat down for two hours, wrote like crazy, presented it to them, and they said, we love it. Uh, chucked a load of money at them and sent them <laughs> off to Los Angeles to find a llama and shoot the series. <laughs> and amazingly, there is a large Shangri-Lama, a ranch, that's now actually moved to Texas, that was just outside Los Angeles, and they, they got their llama. And I was playing uh, Rubelov. Father Rubelov, I think, is, is correct. So a Russian Orthodox priest who's also the head of the local mafia. Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, I had to had to be in a close quarters with Lama Carp, which is not easy. <laughs> They're smelly beasts, and they can, on occasion, if they feel like it, spit at you. Sure. Thankfully, he didn't. That's good. He was actually very well behaved, uh, which was due to the fact they had great handlers and they were constantly feeding him. But yeah, that was <laughs> another extraordinary moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So many young llamas run off to L.A. early in their I career. I know. And they may or may not, but one... My goodness, he goodness. did so well, they retired to Texas. Well. There you go. That's, a, that's not a, bad. In a huge estate, I believe. Pretty good. Uh, so so as we uh, near the finish line, uh, for those out there who need more John Perkis in their lives, uh, you are in luck because uh, when, when you, John, are not creating new characters on screen and stage. You're creating new episodes of the video blog, Diary of an Actor. I am. Um, I am. Which uh, can be seen at least at johnperkis.com. Um, would you explain what that is to the uninitiated, what Diary of an Actor totally. is, and, and why the name change around episode 15? <laughs> yeah, I, I created this with my wife when I first moved to New York, and it happened because when I was in Los Angeles, I was approached by British Equity to create a presence for British Equity Union in Los Angeles for young actors, old actors, any actors, who were coming into LA to help to orientate them. And as a result of that, they, they printed an, an article in their magazine. And then I was getting lots of questions about how do you do this and where do you go to do that? And I thought, you know what, let's make a video diary. It's explaining to everybody the steps they need to take to become an actor uh, in the first place to continue to be an actor if they want to move to Los Angeles, if they want to move to New York, if they want to move the other way around from Los Angeles, New York to London, let's create a, a diary and every now and again pull in a guest. And to begin with, I called it Diary of a Failed Actor because <laughs> I don't believe that there is such a thing as failure. It is in the mind and unfortunately society and sometimes our families determine what failure is mm. because they believe success is a car, a mortgage, a family right. and a regular that income. Definition. Yep. So as an actor, you very seldom fall into that unless you happen to be Ewan McGregor or whoever they perceive as being a successful actor. Now, I just when I was just married to my first wife, we went one Sunday to have lunch and with our hosts who'd hosted the wedding. And at this event was their 14-year-old daughter who was just home for the weekend and had a friend with us. And they, they, they were late arriving at the table. So my hostess was introducing us and saying who we were to her friend and said, and Johnny is an actor. And without a blink of an eye, the friend chirped up and said, oh, my uncle's a failed actor like you. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> I've only just come out of drama school, thank you. <laughs> but where did that come this from? This is the future, yeah. boy. <laughs> yes, what does she see? Um, <laughs> and so, tongue in cheek, I called it Diary of a Failed Actor, explaining what that was about. But of course, there was a hullabaloo from my friends here saying, oh, you can't do that. Anything with failure in it won't, sure. won't work in America. <laughs> my British friends were saying, oh no, keep it, keep it, it's brilliant. And I thought, no, it's not, I've got to change it, otherwise, <laughs> I, for one other reason, I can't have guests sitting with me and saying, my name is Idris Elba, and this is Diary of a Failed Actor. Right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. thought, okay, it has got to be Diary of an Actor. So hence that, and, uh, and we are planning 
planning other episodes as I speak because suddenly work took over. At one point, we were able to shoot two or three a week, mm. uh, which is a lot actually when yeah. you think about it. Yeah. Editing that my my wife has to do. She, it's beautiful. She, yeah, the she's, production oh, is great. She's stunning. She is stunning. She was calling it diarrhea of an actor. <laughs> she says, you know, you have no idea how much I have to edit. Stop it, because <laughs> I didn't work with a script. Mm. Um, I had uh, had my ideas and I was just going. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so yes, so we, we, we want to walk back into that. So it's all a matter of what our availability is as to when we can you can, shoot. Can, sure. can do this. Sure. But I'm thinking, yeah, now I'm going to try and, because I've got to know Brendan Hines very well, I'm getting to, getting to know my cast very well. So I'm thinking of pulling a few of them in to Absolutely. Out to Absolutely. And then when I found out Peter Serafinovitz was the voice of Darth Maul, it's like, what? He sure was, yeah. It's like, oh my lord. At last, we will have our revenge. I mean, yeah. you speak to him and you think, uh... Again, actually, he's Jackie, such a funny guy. He is a and very. Have you seen yeah. his Trump stuff? No. Oh my lord! You got to see those. Oh. He takes his speeches word oh, for yes, word. Yes, yes, I have. He's right. Sassy Trump. Yes, Sassy Trump. Oh, hilarious! So hilarious. brilliant. Yes, so brilliant. But again, Jackie Earl Haley. I didn't really. Oh, no, when so I good. went to the table read, I didn't know who I was meeting. Yeah, and then the when cast I, of that show is crazy. It's phenomenal. Good. Yeah. It is just phenomenal. And again, such a gentle, soft guy you know, who Jackie's played. And you think, I don't, and he's buying these little rose-tinted glasses. <laughs> and boy, can he play the drums. Oh, my law. Wow. Oh, my law. Even in the table read, his rhythm and everything was like, oh, my goodness. And then, and then you see it, and it's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is so but yeah, cool. Yeah, he has a band. Yeah. So. I love it. Well, The Tick returns on Amazon Prime February 23rd, and the enigmatic Dr. Karamazov will be among their number, and there's a head mold, so something's going to happen. Something's there's going gonna to be, happen. I can tell you now. There's he going to be explosions, something. a melting, something. He possesses something that no one else in the universe possesses. The Terror wants it to destroy the world, and the Tick and Arthur want it to save the world. Mm. But... It sounds like this show is about you. That's yeah. what I'm hearing now, is that you are really the central it's, figure. It, it's, no. <laughs> if people wish to follow your adventures, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? Is that your website or are you a social yeah, media person? Yeah, if they person? go on, I am not personally, but my okay. wife is. She does all my PR for me. So I am on John Perkis Actor Facebook. I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram uh, and www.johnperkis.com. You can find me there. Uh, congratulations on that, and thank you so thank much you, for the time. Brad. No, I thank you, Brad. No, thank you, sir. It. I really appreciate it, too. I, hey, I that's haven't talked too much. <laughs> Just days after we recorded this interview, Amazon did pick up the tick for a second season. Huzzah! Hopefully this means even more appearances from John Perkis's fabulously bizarre Dr. Karamazov. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Thanks again to my guest, John Perkis. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ears and brain and theater of the mind to nerd out. It means way more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What deserves to be spanked with a copy of Forbes magazine? Allegedly. Following the last episode, which featured a discussion of The Last Jedi with my wife Lulu French and son Scott Barton, Alex Brewer wrote on Facebook, quote, A note to all. Listen to this and all episodes and review it. If you know or love this clan, it's like hanging out with them, and that is dope. Aw, Alex, that's nice. Jason Addis also chimed in and commented, Great podcast. If you haven't tuned in, you must. Two nice comments in a row. 
Thank you so much, guys. That means a lot to me. I don't take a single listener for granted, and I'm glad to hear that we're doing something that you respond positively to. You, too, can give feedback and be a part of the conversation at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcasts section at the iTunes store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. Now, you know what I'd really appreciate? Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review on iTunes, hopefully a good one, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy man. It will take 30 seconds and could make such a difference to the team behind this podcast. And I will give you an example, because we got our first review on iTunes. Only took two years. Woo! User Shyboy wrote, If you love Nerdist, you have to check this out. Brad Barton and his friends and adorable family take deep dives into all corners of nerd culture in a casual and enjoyable way. Star Wars speculation, interviews with iconic artists and creators, and fun bits make for a great listen that is very much like a conversation with your nerd buddies. No ads! I like that he wrote no ads. And he gave us five stars! Shy boy, I could hug you, except I don't know who you are. And you might be too shy for a hug. It's in your name. The point is, I'm grateful. As for the rest of you, if you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts at soundcloud.com or on Player FM. Never let it be said that we don't hold ourselves to the highest standard of nerd entertainment journalistic standards. If we make a mistake, we're going to cop to it. And that leads me to our first corrections segment. Hi, it's Lulu. Uh, last time I was on the podcast, uh, we as a family were having a roundtable discussion about The Last Jedi, and I said at one point that we needed to do some fact-checking. We did. That's true. Yeah, so facts were checked. They were. They were. Okay, I was wrong about the salt on crate being the red part. It's the white part on the top. Salt being the white part. Got it. <laughs> but you know what, Lulu? It's okay. Because we all make mistakes on this show. In this very episode, I goofed in the interview with John Perkis by referring to the characters he played on Doctor Who as the troclophane. They are the toclophane. Oh, no you, R. How could you do that? I know. Rip up the nerd card. I know. Okay, so I called Assange Ventress Assange. Assange Ventress, Star Wars animated villain Assange Ventress, because she looks a lot like uh, Julian Assange. Sure, right? that's why. <laughs> no, that's why. Um, Anything I, else you want to get off your chest? Uh, well, that you did some. You said something that wasn't entirely correct. That doesn't sound you like said me. That Kylo Ren was the one that shot out the windows on the control vessel, you know, sucking Leia out into space, and it was not him. It was one of his little co-pilot buddies. One of his co-pilot buddies, Chet, the <laughs> TIE fighter pilot. I couldn't tell good. who it was because I had tears in my eyes. Okay, Lulu, all right. Okay, and I also would like to uh, just uh, confirm something. Um, when I was talking about the very sad uh, death of 
Luke Skywalker and how he was looking at the suns. And I said something about, wasn't there something about hope and the sun? And you, you just looked at me like I was crazy. Okay, well, okay. Like I'm doing now. Yeah. I found the, the line that had been spoken earlier in the movie, uh, which is spoken by Admiral Haldo, who is quoting Leia. Mm-hmm. And the line is, hope is like the sun. If you only believe it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. And so, like, that was in my mind somewhere when Luke was looking at the suns as he passed, right? And we, and we, and we, when we were talking about that moment, we were talking about hope and the theme of hope. So, uh, <clears throat> yes, there was a line that referred to the sun and hope. Thank you very much. <laughs> Drop mic. Thank you, Lulu. You're welcome. Huge gratitude to the king of the kilohertz, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our rad-tastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. What every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad He'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts Say no evil. Do no evil. (laughs) Say no evil. Do no evil. (laughs) Say no evil. Do no evil.